Have you felt afraid recently? Have you felt scared any time in the last week, month, or year? I know for me, for one, I have. And I've noticed more and more, maybe another, any other point in my life that I'm scared. Perhaps I could jot it up to transitioning from being a full-time student to being more and more as an adult. But I think this last year, with all that we've experienced, it's perhaps oversaturated us with this atmosphere of fear, if I can use that language. Or maybe it took a year like last year to reveal the reality of fear that we walk through each and every day, yet we simply notice the evidence of fear more clearly than any other year, given how compounded the existence of fear there was. Last year was like a crockpot, with several scary ingredients all simmering together and to create an even more terrifying year for us to consume. Or to phrase it another way, I believe this last year has intensified but also showcased the present grip that fear has on all of us each and every day. But the way our world seemed to operate this past 365 days did not help or alleviate or perhaps quench your fears. Maybe on the other extreme it heightened them or rekindled them. And so I decided that through this Lenten series, we'd go through something I call from fear to faith. We will explore scenarios where people just like you and I were afraid and how their faith and belief in God got them through their circumstances and helped them overcome their fears. I think this sermon series and the subsequent hopeful conversations you have about the topics we explore can help us both, you and I, because I need this just as much as you all do. And in full disclosure, I must admit to you that narrowing down the topics for the sermon series was actually difficult, given the plethora of stories and sayings about fear in the Bible. And perhaps even that alone shows us something. It shows us that even though throughout the entire Bible, devoted followers of God, men and women of faith, have encountered fear just like you and I do, and the good news this morning is that we should not feel any way inferior when we face fears in our lives compared to those in the Bible because our forefathers and foremothers of faith had encountered similar bouts with fear just like us. In the pages of Scripture, we see an emphasis placed and even a priority given to those who are experiencing and overcoming fear with their faith. The Bible has a lot to say about dealing with fear, and I hope that this sermon series will be, will be a time for all of us to tap into that reservoir for grace when we go through our fears. So I want to begin with the question as, who do you put your faith in? That's where I want to start, because I think that's the best place to start. Like a child putting their complete trust and confidence in their parent or guardian, as children of God, we are too are told who we can put our faith in. Yet this simple assurance seems to get forgotten when the heat is turned on. And so Psalm 56 is among many of the songs of David that expresses this truth. Surrounded by his arch enemies, the Philistines, exiled from home and on the run by a monarch out to kill him, David is in a bit of a pickle, as some would say. This is a low point for the rightful king of Israel, yet we see in this man after God's own heart a source of courage and determination to voice this bold claim, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And my prayer this morning for us, church, is that we can leave voicing that same thing, that in God I trust. 
So my first point this morning is that we know God. In 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 14, David's on the run as a fugitive from King Saul. This is the backdrop that's given to us in the superscription at the top of Psalm 56 in your Bibles. And if you recall, David is fleeing from King Saul after God has rejected Saul as king of Israel. And God raised up a new king and the unlikely shepherd boy, David. But yet David's success and fame in the kingdom of Israel robbed the current occupant of the throne the wrong way. So wrong, in fact, that Saul sought to murder David to keep his place on the throne. He seemed to want to do away with the competition and to keep his crown. So David, the rightful ruler and king of Israel, anointed by the prophet Samuel, an able warrior and military strategist, is forced to go on the run. He has to pack his bags and flee his native land to stay, one ahead, stay ahead of Saul and his men all on his own. And so we catch up with David in Philistine territory. Out of desperation, David goes to the land of Israel's arch rivals to hide from Saul. But yet, David seems he can't hide his identity for long in non-Israelite territory. His attempts at subterfuge fail almost immediately, as you'll see in 1 Samuel, because the king of the region, King Achish, easily recognizes him as the one who all of Israel's hit popular music is about. Saul has slain his thousands, and David's his tens of thousands. His reputation has preceded him, and he begins to become anxious, worried, and afraid. The lad, who you will recall, has previously fought lions, bears, and a giant, suddenly becomes afraid. David knows what he's up against, and perhaps he internally calculates the rogue's gallery of adversaries that are against him. David supposes that the king Achash and the Philistines may want some payback against him for his previous victories over them in battle. They may care to take care of David themselves as sort of repayment. Or perhaps maybe they decide to side with their enemy, but now for the moment friend, Saul the Israelite. He has no asylum in the Philistine territory, and they may consider handing him over to Saul as a, on a silver platter. So unable to hide and nowhere left to run, David knows what he's up against. He knows the enemies that oppose him. He knows his fears. And perhaps this is where the language of our psalm begins to come into play. Because one of the root causes of the psalmist anguish in Psalm 56 is this mention of enemies. And the tricky part for us is that we can't look into David's head to know what specific enemies he's talking about. But perhaps this showcases the dynamic nature of this prayer. Like many of the Psalms, they're adaptable to the situations of the, purple, of, the, of the person or community praying them. And the key takeaway is that the psalmist is well aware that his adversities are, quote, trample upon me all day long, and all day long they injure my cause. And so whatever the problem is, it's a constant one. He's not oblivious to what is the cause of his daily hardship and misery. He knows his fears inside and out, but that is not the only thing he knows. He also knows something, or rather he knows someone. He knows God. Missionaries Dick and Margaret Hillis found themselves caught in China during the Japanese invasion in the early stages of the Second World War. The couple lived with their two children in the inland town of Shinku, and the village was tense with fear, for every day brought terrifying reports of the Japanese advancement. And at the worst possible time, Dick developed appendicitis, 
and he knew his life depended on making a, the long journey by rickshaw to the hospital. And so on January 15, 1941, with deep foreboding, Margaret watched her husband leave. And soon the Chinese colonel came with news that the enemy was near and that the townspeople must evacuate. So Margaret shivered, knowing that one-year-old Johnny and two-month-year-old Margaret Ann would never survive as refugees. So she stayed put. And early the next morning, she tore the page off the wall calendar and read the day's scripture. And it was Psalm 56, 3. What time, I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So the town emptied during the day. And the next morning, Margaret rose, feeling abandoned. And the new verse on the calendar was Psalm 9:10, Thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. And so the next morning, she rose to distant sounds of gunfire and worried about food for her children. But the verse on the calendar this, this day was Genesis 5:21, I will nourish you and your little ones. An old woman suddenly popped in with a pail of steaming goat's milk. And another straggler arrived with a basket of eggs. Then through the day, sounds of warfare continued to grow louder. And during the night, Margaret prayed for deliverance. And the next morning, she tore the page from the calendar to read Psalm 56, 9. When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. The battle was looming closer, and Margaret didn't go to bed that night. Invasion seemed imminent, but the next morning, all was quiet. Suddenly, villagers began returning to their homes, and the colonel knocked on the door. For some reason, he told her, the Japanese had withdrawn their troops. No one could understand it, but the danger had passed. They were safe. Margaret glanced at her wall calendar and felt she had been reading the handwriting of God. Do you know God? Do you know his handwriting? For the psalmist, knowing God and his promises dispels his fears. It is this acknowledgement that prompts him to say, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in God. And God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. With this trust and confidence in his knowledge and relationship to God, allows the psalmist to boldly assert, What can flesh do to me? I think we resonate with the psalm initially. We know our fears. I think if I asked you, perhaps... If you and I were on a one-on-one setting, you can pinpoint the source of your fears. And I could do the same. Whether it's our health or our jobs, our finances, our loved ones, our kids, the weather, the government, the future, you fill in the blank. We could all make a list upon list of all that we know that stimulates fear in our lives. That's not hard. And I bet David didn't find that too difficult either. In fact, it's probably regrettably too easy. The difficult part comes with calling to mind what you know about God and what he has said. It's almost as if our minds make more room or make enough space for our fears that trouble us, but it's hard to call to mind the one who brings us peace. Psalm 56 is not about about whether we should trust, but rather with what or whom we shall trust. That's the question that Psalm 56 wants to help us address. And we live in a shaky time right now where multiple things are vying for our attention, allegiance, and trust. Various people and organizations are desiring to dispel our fears and remedy our world's plight, but yet in a sea of dubious and sometimes false and even ultimately never completely satisfactory human solutions to our fears, I want us to bring us back to the promises of God we find in Scripture. 
And remember the God who is on our side because knowing God is the only true remedy to our fears. While God may work through people and as instruments of him calming our fears, it is ultimately recognizing and knowing God that quenches our fears. In times when we are afraid, like that of the psalmist, we should lean on and remember the promises of God as our first reaction to the things we know that generate fear in our lives. Promises such as Exodus 14.13 that says, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you. Or perhaps in Joshua 10, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Or in Isaiah 41.10, do not not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous, victorious right hand. Or maybe Jeremiah 30. But as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob says to the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. The New Testament writers pick up on this good news, but they see it through the lens of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so take, for instance, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, who picks up on remembering one's relationship with God in times of fear. And he states that those who have been born again through the Holy Spirit no longer have fleshly fleshly spirits of fear, but rather the Spirit of God lives in them. Hear this word, church, from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. For all who have been led by the Spirit are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. And when you cry, Abba, Father, it is this very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice that the Apostle Paul does not dismiss the reality of opposition in our human existence. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit in us that works to remind us of who we are as children of God and the subsequent promises that accompany that adoption. If you belong to the family of God and know God as your heavenly father, the promises of God's presence and help when you are afraid apply to you. It's the spirit of God then that will prompt us to utter with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, Paul is no stranger to enemies and living a difficult life. He more than many experienced immense hardship during his life. Yet he was convinced that nothing could separate us from God. Romans 8.37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But this brings me to my next point, which is that God knows us. So while we see in Psalm 56 that that David knows God, and to the extent that we know God, we also get a glimpse into what God knows, namely that God knows us. Psalm 56.8 says, "You You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, Are they not in your record? We are all known by God. We know God is for us, but the reverse is also true, that God knows us. What a remarkable, incredible revelation, is it not? That the God of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, knows us. He knows each and every one of us and the oppositions we face on a routine basis. He knows and keeps track, according to the psalmist, the worries that plague our minds, the concerns that sting our souls, and the anxieties that cause us unrest in our spirits. The psalmist has deep belief that God knows the entirety of his fears. He knows our fears just as much as we do. God is not oblivious to them, nor is God surprised by them, nor is God afraid with the psalmist. 
None of these are God's reaction to the psalmist's plight. The psalmist is convinced that God is totally mindful of his predicament and cares that the psalmist is afraid. But the hardest part of Psalm 56 is that there is no indication that the psalmist's fears are taken away from him. Psalm 56 does not suggest that God suddenly and immediately removes the conditions that cause the psalmist to be afraid. We are not told that. But notice that that does not deter the psalmist. God not, God not immediately resolving his plight does not cause him doubt or dismay from saying, by this I know that God is with me. Despite his fears remaining a present reality, the psalmist is still convinced of the providence and care that comes from God knowing his condition. And he believes wholeheartedly that God hears and sees him. There once was a man that was trapped on the edge of a cliff with a raging fire burning toward him. It will only be a minute or two before the fire consumes him when he hears a voice from below the cliff amidst the darkness calling, Jump! The man answers, But I can't see you. There's only darkness down there. But the voice from the deep sounds back, Jump anyway. I can see you. Have any of you felt like you were dangling on the edge of a cliff like the man in this story at some point in this past year? I know I have. Yet when I hear God calling out to me to let go, I find it sometimes hard to believe that he's going to catch me. From time to time, I can't see God moving and working in my life to let go and have faith that God will take care of me. I sometimes believe he's forgotten me or he's ignoring me or he's moved on from me to maybe someone more important. And as I dangle over the abyss of fear, clinging for salvation, I wonder if God even cares that I'm over the edge right now. Because I think, I think fear is very persuasive, especially when we are isolated away from a community of faith. I think the dialogue of fear is really logical and pragmatic. And in my experience, the voice of fear always makes sense. It's an assessment of my situation that sounds reasonable and justifiable. I want to believe it. But Psalm 56 reminds me of the illogical and radical truth that we are known by God. That doesn't make sense that God knows me and he knows you and he knows what's going on in your life. That doesn't make sense, but it's true. Here the words of Jesus are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are more valuable than sparrows. We are precious to God that we may feel alone or isolated, away from God in our moments or even our seasons of fear, we can take heart that God cares for us because we are known by God. God hears and sees us when we are afraid. We're always known by the God of the universe. We are loved and cared for by the one that spun the solar system into motion, carved out the depths of the seas, crafted each and every living thing in the world, and even conquered the powers of death by willingly being crucified for our sake. And because of that, we can assuredly say with the psalmist, this I know that God is for me. So this is my final point for you all. Choose faith, not fear. 
We began with, no, with what we know about God, and then we explored the reality that God knows us. So how do we respond? We respond with a choice, to walk by faith and not fear. Notice the final two verses of Psalm 56. After twice voicing his trust in God, his resolve to not be afraid, and a rebuke against the human harm that could come to him, the psalmist makes a vow. Confident that the Lord will deliver him, the psalmist makes a vow to present a thankful offering to God. And catch that the psalmist does not wallow in despair, rather the psalmist pledges allegiance to God. The psalmist chooses to side with God, he remains loyal to him. Because he knows with confidence that God will take care of him, even if he doesn't quite understand it from his perspective. He chooses to be obedient to God, even if God does not fix what causes him fear right away. He chooses a posture of thanksgiving and gratitude towards God, even if his situation doesn't change. He says that he will never stop praising God. As long as there is breath in his body, the psalmist wants to use his breath praising God in some way. But catch this last line, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from falling so that I may walk before God in the light of life. This fidelity to God is not unfounded in the mind of the psalmist. David has has experienced God's faithfulness to him prior to his arrival in Gath, even during his time in Gath, and he expects God to be faithful to him after his tenure in Philistine territory. He has been surrounded by enemies and on the brink of death on numerous occasions, yet God has graciously delivered him time and again from these dangers and has kept him alive. And this is the bedrock of his allegiance to God. And now he confidently appeals to God to interpose on his behalf again and keep him from stumbling. And he continues onward into the unknown future. He wants God to guide him. Amidst the darkness that fear evokes in our lives, he's requesting God illuminate the paths before him that he may, stay, may not stray and be, or be disobedient to God. He wants God's light to guide his steps so that he will not stumble and fall. He is saying, Lord, you've rescued me, but help me stay rescued. A mother and her four-year-old daughter were preparing to retire for the night, and the child was afraid of the dark. And the mother, on this occasion alone with the child, felt fearful as well. When the light was out, the child caught a glimpse of the moon outside the window. Mother, she asked, is the moon God's light? Yes, said the mother. But the next question was, will God put out his light and go to sleep? The mother replied, no, my child. God never goes to sleep. Then out of the simplicity of the child's faith, she said, that which gave her assurance to her fearful mother that night. Well, as, God, as long as God is awake, there's no sense both of us staying awake. Perhaps the choice to walk by faith over fear is like that of a child. Instead of overcomplicating it with theological jargon or putting unnecessary caveats in front of it, we simply just believe in God when we are afraid. And while this does not guarantee our situation will change immediately, And it does not magically fix or rectify our fears, but it does help us take the next step, the next breath, go into the next moment. I've always asked myself, and I ask you now, can I go back to that childlike faith when I trusted God without qualifying it, putting stipulations on it, or putting a schedule on it? I think we mature adults think we know better, but I don't know if we don't. 
We've lived long enough on this earth to know how bad this world is or how hard this world can be. But maybe we haven't quite fully understand how God works. Perhaps when it comes to what makes us afraid, we can simply just reach out to God and know who also knows us to help us choose faith over fear. Perhaps we go back to that original Veggie Tales theme that God is bigger than the boogeyman and he's watching over you and me.